0: Strange Clay, Ceramics and Contemporary Art, a large-scale group exhibition featuring 23 international artists, was at Hayward Gallery from October 2022 to January 2023. Out of the Kiln, From Technique to Concept, presents two artists from the exhibition, Aaron Angel and Serena Corder, in conversation with exhibition curator Cliff Larson and Isabella Smith, Deputy Editor at Crafts. Together they discuss working with ceramics and explore how their clays, glazes and firing techniques give form to their creative vision. This talk was presented in partnership with Crafts Magazine and was recorded on November 26th 2022. The talk opens with some further background from Isabella Smith.
1: tell you a little bit more about crafts magazine who we are and what we do we're a magazine about contemporary craft we've been published by the crafts council for the last 49 years this year we've had a major redesign and reimagined what it is that we do we're now a biannual publication with an events program and this is one of our events so thank you so much to all of the crafts members who've joined us here and to those who will be listening to the audio recording at a later date I should add that we've launched a membership scheme and that if you would like to try the magazine before you commit, you can go to the Hayward Gallery shop where you'll find our very beautiful autumn-winter issue with jade blades on the cover. So, apart from my role at Crafts, I'm also the author of a book on Lucy Ree, which just came out a couple of months ago with Ida Down Books. Um, and I've been writing about ceramics for about the last eight years or so. So it's really fantastic to be invited here to talk more about Strange Clay, which has to be the most significant exhibition about ceramic art in God knows how long. I should ask Cliff that. What do you reckon?
2: A long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <yeah. clears throat> last year, biennial.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I was working for Ceramic Review about seven or so years ago, and I remember going to Freeze that year and just being amazed at the at the sheer quantity of ceramics of fairly kind of variable quality that had popped up seemingly out of nowhere. And, and since then, I think that presence of ceramics in the contemporary art world has never really gone away. Um, so I think this exhibition is extremely timely, if not perhaps overdue. Um, I'm, I'm surprised no, nobody's got there first because it's such a rich and fascinating topic. And then, of course, you know, apart from the contemporary art world, we've also seen famously a proliferation of interest in pottery across the kind of reality t v world we've seen it uh, you know people following pottery Instagram influencers who have literally millions of followers um, and you know every ceramic artist is now also offering evening classes to meet to meet demand It's interesting to think about the different avenues in which ceramic art is making itself seen uh, right now, and obviously we're talking about contemporary art largely but um, you know this kind of work has been made really for as long as humans have been making art the kind of work that we'll see in the show I don't know how many of you have already had a chance to see it the oldest work is I think from the 70s so it takes in some of those really key names from that period like Ken Price and Ron Nagel and Betty Woodman and some of those Mm -hmm. greats but brings us right up to the present with people um, who you may or may not be as familiar with Um, So today we're going to be talking about how artists use ceramics and thinking about the ways that they use clays, glazing, firing techniques, um, different surface textures and so on to give form to their creative visions and to think about why clay? Why choose clay of all the mediums? Um, What are its kind of specific material qualities? What are the technical aspects that make it such a rich, fertile ground for uh, contemporary art practice? So um, I'll start by putting you on the spot, Cliff, and ask, why, why Strange Clay? Why the title Strange Clay?
2: <laughs> why Clay? Why Strange Clay? For me, it really um, came out of a number of meetings with artists and watching over the past decade or even slightly longer and a, and a kind of uh, resurgence and an interest in contemporary art uh, for the medium of, of clay and ceramics, which otherwise have been proliferating in, in many other ways. And so... It it's, it sort of started gradually, quite gradually, and like eventually, you know, you, you log things and you track things and you kind of have things, ideas in the back burner and so forth. Eventually, things reach a critical mass, and it becomes, you know, an interesting sort of thought experiment to think about. If you could make a show, then what would that look like? There's a kind of momentum or a critical mass of ideas. Pre-COVID, in the in the sort of curatorial team here, we're talking about doing a show, um, and it was like, yeah, that seems like sort of current and on, on the mark in terms of ideas and what's happening in contemporary practice. But then, of course, pandemic for a couple of years and a lockdown. So the, so the idea in the show was actually um, waylaid by a, a couple of years. And during that time, it sort of entered a, a bit of a slow burn. I think, you know, by that, I mean, there were lots of conversations that then happened over Zoom, which you, you can imagine... Uh, is is quite challenging in terms of sculpture <laughs> because people are like holding their laptops up in the studio saying, "Look at my sculpture," and I will walk you around it, um, and of course you're not getting that tactile sense that all of the makers have, which is it's like intimate relationship between the um, the medium and, and and themselves. But you know the the show was then set up for this slot and that allowed just enough time coming out of lockdowns to to make a number of studio visits with masks, and then eventually... For me, Clay, Ceramics, and this show, which is, um, a, as the subtitle suggests, about ceramics in contemporary art, w- was very much co- kind of observing and coming from from artists th- themselves. And why strange? So, you know, people don't necessarily make shows on painting, mm, generally yeah. speaking, yeah, yeah. or video art, sure. generally speaking. Um, so as, as a sub-theme became very much about using ceramics in a, in a, in a surprising, um, in an inventive way um, that was possibly slightly disarming, mm. possibly had tones of surrealism built into it. And of course, being presented in, in the Hayward, taking the opportunity to really work with and pushing against or being in dialogue with the architecture of the building, mm. which is quite different from domestic settings that, that one often experiences either everyday ceramics or... Um, art.
1: Yeah, I think turning to Serena and Aaron thinking about the choice of clay Aaron, you work across medium I'm aware obviously that ceramics come freighted with constraints they, there's constraints on scale, there's constraints on firing, the myriad challenges of glaze chemistry and that being the case, why why do you both feel it's so important to choose that as your key medium of choice?
3: I think about it as... Um the animistic qualities of it, the the human tactile qualities of it, and the fact that you are in a dialogue with it as when you're making, so you can push it and and it'll say no, and you kind of just then can work backwards or work through those restrictions and embrace like the mistakes and the happy accidents and the things that go wrong. I think mm-hmm. that's where I come at it from. Mm.
4: Yeah, no, I kind of agree, and I, I also think it's it, what kind of appealed to me about it was that. You have to kind of produce a kind of studio setup um, around yourself that allows for the kind of production of objects of clay, and that kind of, for me, really became a kind of big part of it. Once you have that kind of setup, once you have the equipment, once you have a kind of facility or a kind of laboratory, it's actually then very, very cheap to make work with as well, um, and incredibly easy to overproduce, which is one of its biggest problems, I think, um, and the, the impossibility of recycling. Something that's finished but is terrible. Um, you know, it just you can turn it into hardcore and that's that's about it. But yeah, it's it's limited. There's loads of things that Clay can't do, loads of things people shouldn't try to make it do. I mean, this is one of the biggest challenges of running a residency program, which I've been doing for the last kind of seven years or so. That program is kind of designed for artists who haven't worked with ceramics before. And the first thing that happens is people come in and try and make something that they've never seen before in ceramic um, in, in a very basic sense in terms of you know something that's very long and thin or very solid and huge and um, quite quickly you have to kind of check them on that
1: there was a quote I really enjoyed from Amy Sherlock's excellent essay in the exhibition catalog where she she quotes Joseph albers the the Bauhaus turned Black Mountain College um, luminary who said uh, that clay was the medium that was most prone to the abuse by amateurs, or, or words to that effect. Mm-hmm. I probably got that quote wrong. There was something that you said, Serena, when we were chatting on Zoom before this meeting about um, the quote-unquote black box of the kiln. Could you could you mm-hmm. tell the audience a bit about what you were saying there?
3: Oh, I guess I was I was thinking. Well, I come from a, a background that is not I'm not ceramic trained in any way, and <clears throat> I basically find a process I'm interested in and I think my work is very process-led so that's why ceramics sort of entertains my brain a lot and I think if I wasn't prepared to sort of enter into that kind of laboratory or scientific almost investigation of the material then it wouldn't be for me but um, yeah there's something about the magic and the alchemy that that does occur when you close the lid on that kiln whatever kiln it may be but also I didn't have a kiln up until 2021 myself. So I would go to other people and hire their kilns and jump on the back of someone else's firing. So it's sort of being open to whatever might happen. You can have a lot of control to to a degree with the material prior to that point. And then when it goes in there, but yeah, it's about letting go and, and embracing the risk of what might happen to all those months of work. That can be a terrifying thing, but then it it can be a wonderful thing of kind of accepting the flaws and the cracks and the imperfections and seeing them as the beauty in the work, embracing that and uh, kind of going with it. I mean, for me, the firing isn't the end part of the process either. Um, I guess there's a freedom to making sculpture with, with clay as opposed to being a studio potter where, you know, the, the idea of, like, there being a break or crazing or all the problems that can happen with, with this process they just either go in the bin or they become seconds or um, I guess, yeah, that moment of opening the kiln isn't the end point. It can go back in the kiln as well, I guess, for further firings and overglazes and all sorts of things. So it is a magic box. And I think the minute you sort of open up to that possibility of mistakes happening and embracing that, it kind of takes some of the edge off of that moment.
1: What what would you say, Aaron, the the role of chance is in your work? Has that played a part, or are you more of the school of um, precision?
4: I think the longer you go with it, the more predictable you want things to be. My sculpture's been moving towards kind of long-form wood firing for a few years, and that's a bit different because you start to use that kiln as a kind of painting mechanism in itself, and it becomes much more about body selection and the stack itself, and even kind of fuel wood and, and things like that, which I think is interesting. It stops it being that total kind of black box system, in a way. I mean, things come out of the gas kiln, which are horrible all the time, and uh, you know, unexpectedly so. There's an unpredictability in that. I actually find that a more empirical process, because because of how those are fired and, and, and what you're kind of doing to them. And there's also a, a much more limited set of materials which go into a firing like that as well can um,
1: we do a bit of a definition of terms here so can you just quickly describe in in more layman's terms what you've just said about the anagama and the stack and the body
4: uh an- anagama kiln is a medieval kiln design incredibly inefficient but that's like you know it's kind of part of it it's a monodirectional fire as well so you kind of have a gradient of heat work from the kind of front to the back and a gradient of firing effects fired for anything between three days and three weeks.
1: It's an incredibly poetic way of firing, as far as I'm concerned. There's maybe no, nothing more enchanting than anagama firing for me. But one of those things that makes that so interesting is, is the role of chance to me, because the way that the ash is something that you can, to a degree, control, but you still rely so much on the currents of air and where the ash will land on the clay and how it will vitrify and how it will create this this kind of natural semi-accidental glaze is a kind of an endless marvel, I think.
3: But It's, it's interesting because I work with an electric kiln. I've never worked in this way, but I've got a, a friend that digs earth from rivers and she makes these things. And from looking or seeing them on Instagram and following people that use them, they seem like real beasts in a way that you're kind of feeding them and you really have to kind of tend to them for days.
4: Yeah, you you have to kind of write like a bit of a military camp as well, which is fun. (laughs) Again, again, it's like there's this surrounding which isn't the work, which I think is quite kind of interesting. It gives it, it's a context of making, um, which is very hard to keep private. It it is very hard to not run anagamma firings in a communal way. Mm. Almost impossible, actually. Um, Yeah,
1: it's essentially like the exact opposite of the, the trope of the you know, the noble artist alone in a studio having genius ideas out of nowhere. You know, you have to have a team of people working in coordination together to keep this thing burning for 16 days, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Although, I remember I had a chat with the anagama firing potter, Nancy Fuller, Um, she's in rural Scotland. And she said that when she trained in Japan, um, the women potters there who weren't accepted as part of Japan's very still patriarchal pottery systems, they would do solo firings, which I thought was absolutely insane. So they would set they would set themselves alarms for so they would sleep for twenty minutes and then their alarm would go off and they'd they'd check the fire and then they'd sleep for twenty minutes. Yeah. I think I think that's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> but quite impressive. Cliff, I believe there's twenty three artists in the show. You must have had a lot of conversations about chance and where that can take you and the the pleasures and perils of that. Are there any kind of notable highlights that stand out for you when thinking about that particular quality of ceramic art.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think as an overarching frame, the fact that it's a ceramic show, because there's lots of artists also working in unfired clay. Um, and so the, the one of the parameters of the show is, is on ceramics. So there's a kind of, um, I mean, a, a study or a, a kind of thread that runs through it um, about <coughs> different aspects of chance and working with kilns and firings of all different um, Shapes, sizes, and techniques. Um, I think you know, ranging uh, from you know visiting Serena with her uh, setup, sort of off the off the side of um, her home, uh, to David Zink Yee, who created the squid in ink, um, who works in a, a sort of warehouse factory in Berlin, uh, and it's one of those industrial-sized kilns. So there's a forklift that sort of puts the pallet in. Um, and you can walk into the kiln, which is a bit scary. <laughs> um, but, you know, a, a full range. Um, and then, of course, as, as Aaron was speaking, in some of Aaron's uh, Anagama work in the show. So, um, a whole variety of things. And I didn't want to over-bake huh, the surrealist uh, aspect of chance, you know, in terms of the function that that kind of performs. But I think as one goes through each of the artists, they're all different takes to. Um, ideas on chance and um, uh, pre- accepting that or not, and ideas about perfection or not. Um, there's a tendency towards to just work with it, but also I think as one um, and maybe as Aaron was hinting there, as, as artists sort of um, are increasingly comfortable with what they're trying to do with the medium and how that sort of behaves or doesn't in the kiln, then it becomes predictable and sometimes repeatable. Um, so, just coming off the top of my head, Rachel Kneebone's work in porcelain, um, which is quite dramatic for the use of that particular material, um, over years, possibly decades, has you know refined understanding exactly how the material sags. So, in order to to obtain the final organic feel of it, the kind of fleshy feel of porcelain, um, has you know knows the thickness, knows when to support and when not to support, so that through firing it, it either collapses intentionally or doesn't. And it's not to say it knocks out chance, but she's learned to work with with the with the behaviour of the process.
1: Mm-hmm. I just noticed as you were speaking that we've got a detail of Serena's piece from the show on the screen, so perhaps we should take the opportunity to talk mm-hmm. a bit more about that, because it's such a richly detailed, fascinating object could you tell us more about this piece yeah, I think it's
3: 15 15 meters long uh 14 14 meters last long. count but it could sort of shift and change depending on like where it where it appears and the spaces it's in this piece really was born through lockdown um it was I have set my studio up that's down the side of my house that Cliff came to see. My work really shifted from being very participatory. I was making things people could sing into that were made of ceramics, so uh, witches' bottles. So there's a lot of witchcraft and spellmaking in my work. But this was really the beginning of a kind of world-building exercise for me, of like a storytelling narrative that is continuing through my work to current to present day which is just deeply imaginative and kind of each bead became the bead of a giant necklace for an imagined mermaid. And I guess currently I'm sort of rethinking these sort of females that are present in our collective unconscious, Um, rethinking what their role is um, and how they've been kind of embedded in us uh, and their ideas, but could they be seen in a slightly different way? So this is for a giant mermaid, I guess. It was... Initially shown in Naples, so Parthenope was in my head. So she's the Napoli, the symbol that's everywhere of the mermaid. But the story that I read, but there are obviously thousands of stories, but the story I read that she was sort of this unrequited love um, of Odysseus and she kind of cried herself the tears that became the Amalfi Coast. Um, so that idea of tears and grief was in the work. There's a, an emblem that's recurrent, on a lot of the beads which is a kind of slip trailing of a tear so there was this sort of sense of um, an abjectness sort of occurring but then I was thinking about grief a lot and the sort of collective grief that we were all kind of experiencing and coming through through lockdowns and Covid so it definitely had an impact on the work it was built over a four month period kind of every day and making these beads and setting intentions as I was making them as well so there's a little bit of spell making in there
1: <laughs> I'd encourage anyone who's yet to visit the show to pay close attention to each individual bead because each one is completely different and each one is a kind of a sculpture onto its own there's a lot of cast fingers that kind of protrude mm. I know do,
3: do a lot of casting it's kind of now become a, I've been sculpting a lot but it's what I find interesting is how when you make a press mold or a, or you cast something, how, when you're repeating the, the mul- like that quality of being able to make a multiple from a, a mould I find really enjoyable the, what you lose in the detail in a way, like each time you make it or each time it comes out and, and how you can manipulate that that you can make a lot of them but then manipulate them and make them do different things the mm-hmm. idea that it's been deep dredged into the sea and and it's been dredged out for the show Kind of is what I was hoping for so I was working with oxides and trying to get this rusty kind of quality to things so I guess I work conceptually but in a way but the process drives that concept so it's always like a symbiotic thing of like the two things or the process leads me to be able to express the idea uh, or the sentiment or the feeling behind the work
1: Yeah, I think that phrase that you just said, the process drives the concept, is really, really interesting. And the way that you've chosen to use slip trailing for those droplets is, you know, there there isn't a better technique to convey a tear than a a drop of slip trailing. So it's a kind of it's an amazingly kind of appropriate (laughs) use of concept and the clay coming together to to express one another. So Aaron, we've had your images um, looping while while Serena was talking. So let's let's talk a bit about that with regards to your work and the way that you use a lot of the classic Anglo-Japanese glazes?
4: I've been moving away from glazing with, with the kind of um, sculpture. Very oh. interested in iga ware and have been for several years, uh, yaki and shigaraki yaki, which are two um, classical, kind of medieval Japanese types of pottery, from, from basically from kind of neighbouring valleys. Um, but this... Um, both these kind of styles of, of, of pottery, which developed for the tea ceremony, um, in the kind of Momoyama period, um, and what was happening was there was a, there was a real taste at that time for these authentically kind of um, rusticated tea bowls and and hanaire flower vases, um, which were kind of from the eleventh century, twelfth century. It had a kind of patina of time about them. Um, They were very loosely made because they came from a kind of mass production context. And what happened in the Momoyama period is the tea masters kind of pressed regional potters in in kind of kiln contexts in in the middle of Japan into producing highly rusticated work for the tea ceremony, but in a way where it was really kind of pushed to its limit. In the case of Iga in particular, extended wood firings, deliberate breakages, deliberate kind of re-consecrating of different pieces from different cups into one cup. And just aesthetically as an idea, I think it was miles ahead of its time um, in terms of what was going on in the West. I actually think it's really camp. I don't think that's kind of spoken about a lot. I mean, it it comes from a serious context, which kind of overlaps with Zen Buddhism at times as well. But generally speaking, it was for kind of secular pleasure. It's this kind of mindset you fall into. I don't really know what to call that. but. that's, that's where I am.
1: I think it's um, it's interesting to think here about one of the other artists in the show whose work is, is not that this is by any means a measure of quality, but um, although it happens to be a very high quality, but probably the most photographed work in the whole show is got to be Takura Kuwata's pieces, I would say. Um, they're on the exhibition poster. They're incredibly charismatic, striking objects, you know, gloopy, psychedelic, dripping, cracking, brightly coloured metallic they've got it all they, i mean they are extremely camp to, to, to borrow that, that
4: yeah yeah no he's i mean he's yeah he's pr- he's brilliant it <laughs> yeah he's taking it to
1: another level but he's 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 interestingly drawing from the same roots right he's um he yeah. takes a lot of those traditional techniques and just kind of turns up the volume
4: yeah he looks at the kind of Chawan and um, the large Chawan in particular makes that even larger um, mm. but yeah no i think Taco is really interesting kind of working within and without uh, tradition yeah um, his work was shown a big show at a Zen monastery at some point in the last few years and and I thought that was a very interesting kind of confirmation of his status within in in the world of teaware really
1: that makes me think about the ceramics obviously has incredibly ancient history, and some artists work with almost no regard for that context and others find it impossible to escape and there's a whole spectrum in between. I think it's Magdalena Dundo is quoted in the catalogue as saying um, you have to know the tradition in order to subvert it. You know it's quite visible in the show when people are talking within traditions and when people aren't I found. It'd be interesting to hear how you both as artists experience that weight of history. Is it baggage or
3: is it I get drawn in by different processes, and I think you get excited when you see something in a, in like the V&A, like agate. Where like there's one example I can think of, uh, or Nerikomi, I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, so you can correct me. But that's when you stain bodies of clay and you sort of put them together and you slice through them, and it's not about the the surface glaze; it's about uh, the body of the the material itself being the decoration. And I became really fascinated by that, and that drove how I made these giant sound dishes that I made for the Baltic show back in 2018 called Missing Time. So every time I'm doing something, there's always something I want to learn about when I'm making, that's definitely how I feel when I make. I kind of want to go on a learning curve. There's something about coming out of your comfort zone, and it's just such an enormous history with the ceramics. It's like never-ending. That's what sort of drives you, I think, a lot of the time. It drives me. And, like, another piece I can think of where I wanted the ping of porcelain because I was making a lot of sound works using ceramics. So I was made these mushroom bells as you do but you know I'd, I'd never slip cast I'd never worked with porcelain before so you are learning each time like a new clay body and new approach to making that sort of adds to that conceptual element of what you're doing for me it does. Cliff when people are seeing the show do you think that
1: something is lost if they're coming to it? with zero context or or how do you think that plays into the the visitor experience because obviously a a major exhibition like this can't solely be for kind of ceramics aficionados it has to be for a general (laughs) audience how how is that uh, presence or absence of history felt do you think by the general viewer
2: Um, I hope that and and part of the aim was that audiences and viewers from any background can, can enter the show and that there's lots of layers of information that are accessible if you are inclined to know if you if you want to find out. It sort of breaks down into there being different sort of groups. So you mentioned Magdalene, but of course Edmund is another one. I mean Takoru is actually another one who hold with them the histories of like studio practice or ceramic clay practice from traditions that they themselves have been steeped in. But as a as a show kind of about strangeness much of the interest of of their work has been about the turn and what they've done sort of against that or subverting those traditions or histories. You sort of encounter something and you you feel a kind of connection in viewing it or an experience in viewing, it, but then hopefully that sort of opens a door to then understanding or or going to find out a bit more about the background that you know that those artists sort of are bringing to their practices. As Serena said, uh, a number of them, you know, have come from actually different art trajectories, and brought those sort of skills and histories uh, into their working with clay ceramics. And so I kind of feel as though, within the show, histories of clay and ceramics sit alongside other histories, and those include personal histories, or histories from other media, or different art histories, or global histories, or different narratives. And so those things kind of all sit. Maybe on a level and are and are mixed and remixed, depending on which which artist's work you're looking at.
1: I'm reminded here of Aaron's kind of often cited aim when you first set up, Troytown Art Pottery back in what was it, 2014, to make it a vessel-free space. That you get <laughs> <trying to laughs> yeah, pulled up on Didn't that increasingly. It? Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: it's on your business card no? <laughs> uh, not anymore.
4: So what was the question?
1: Talk to us about that, (laughs) about choosing to make ceramic sculpture outside of ceramic history, constraints, pottery, etc.
4: I think at the time, I've always liked pots, I've always collected pots, but I wanted to see what it looked like to set up a a sculpture-specific ceramic studio. we tumbled into becoming a normal pottery over the years, and now, yeah, we make a hell of a lot of pots. Um, (laughs) It was about keeping potters out. Um, (laughs) And... Other studios were kind of starting to emerge in London, which were much more kind of gym membership uh, sort of as <laughs> space for makers I 'm not, I'm not being critical like yes, it's, it's a, it's a, it's this funny. is how people you know make work. I just wanted to do something a bit different, um, and it was also the context I was coming from as an artist was that, that I knew artists and I knew sculptors, I knew painters. Um, I wanted to see what it was like to kind of make an environment for them, where it was not really about what they could do for ceramics, but what ceramics could do for them. In the sense that every ceramic studio is a very specific material kind of context. It's very hard to do everything at once, so it's about you know what can this setup do do for that kind of artist. Um,
3: for me, um, Camden Arts Centre, and Jenny uh, yeah. L- Low Max really was was that yeah. person. But no, I think for a lot of artists in the show, Jonathan Baldock, Emma Hart um me uh Salvatore a lot of people Jenny is just this warm brilliant person in the in the art world and she said I've got to kill and come use it you know it's like I, I was lucky to have that because I think I was put off by the very good description of the sort of gym membership if you have a certain space on on a shelf that, that you can fill and I mean I've shared kilns I understand that and I like the communal nature of a studio but that can be very limiting I think when you have like bigger bigger ideas of how you want to make something
4: it's also just about kind of trying to sort of shift focus on clay to say that it's just sculpture like it's kind of if it's just another kind of material that something shouldn't be interesting because it's made of ceramic it can you can kind of get into it and it and and then it can kind of be technical and kind of reveal itself but it still has to be you know a good piece of sculpture
1: it's interesting to think about where process sits versus the idea you know what comes first chicken or the egg that kind of thing because for people like Ken Price and Ron Nagel who were working in California in the context where they were drawing inspiration from things like um, like car modification and surfer culture and like surfer board surfaces and that kind of thing. What comes first? Is it the idea? Is it the fact of this multi process? I was quite tickled by David Cinkey's piece, um, which is, I forget the name of, but it's essentially a series of about a hundred or so glazed test tiles in a row. I think it's called All My My Colours. All My Colours, yeah. Yeah. I was like, that is a perfect mid-ground between process and concept kind of meeting. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that. Where is the chicken? Where is the egg?
2: For All My Colours, it it was one of the the reasons for including it. I think it's something that, if you're a maker, is deeply familiar. (laughs) Like, I have that in my studio. Um, Maybe not in sort of such nice forms, but it does really point to process but in particular for David, came at a moment where he was endlessly searching for a way of representing the aquatic and trying to, to nail a number of different glazes, which would just really give you that sort of wet slime sort of feel to things. Um, I mean, process and material is an interesting one in that, yes, there's Nagel and price sort of a little bit of that historical conversation and I mean you know what was happening in the west coast at that time because there's other artists making work out of plastics and it's just a kind of explosion of um, experimenting (coughs) with different materials but then you sort of thread it through to um, a contemporary artist like Lindsay Mendick it was a new commission for the show so it didn't exist before but in concept in the lead-up to the show be trying to explain to people that it's a it's a sort of Broken down, deconstructed house in miniature, and there's a staircase and a sofa with the back torn out. <laughs> all these things, which are not clay ceramics, but of course, once you once you see it, that's absolutely sort of key to her making and what you know. Part of that sort of scene setting, the mise en scène, is about putting all those different elements together beyond uh, clay ceramics
1: something about knowledge sharing as well, which is interesting there, because, you know, the knowledge of a specific, how to unlock a specific surface effect. It's a kind of a an, an alchemical world that you can dive headfirst into and sort of never emerge again. But I think it's quite interesting how that is such a communal area that you were talking about Camden Arts Centre and their technician there, Serena, yeah. and, you know, the sharing of knowledge, that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has their person (laughs) that sort of leads you through perhaps it's not just ceramics but but for me it was ceramics and it was dan dan stafford uh, who was technician at camden for about 20 years and just came with a real generosity of spirit of kind of sharing his knowledge as a teacher i mean that is there but there's also secrecy because people spend years and years sort of developing (laughs) a technique. You know, we were talking to Salvatore, I think, at the press open and he was like, I'm going off to Hungary to work with a guy and because I like what he does and and he's been doing it for years and and I think you asked him what, what it was and he said I don't even know what it is yeah, really yeah, the yeah, process kind of like it, bohemian yeah, thing but he but said it's top drumming. secret <laughs> and you ha- just have to go there to like learn the dark arts so he's willing to like let you in the studio and probably you have to I don't know sign something <laughs> so he won't tell anyone else I don't know more spells but yeah more spells
2: but there's, I, a, there's a yeah.
4: few secrets left but not many I mean and I think that's only sort of 10 years old or so, that it's really become quite democratised. It's why everyone's work looks like taco rose now, because those recipes are just on the internet. But that's really recent, and I think that's kind of interesting.
1: That just made me think about something I like about Lucy is the fact that she was never precious about glaze recipes, even though, you know, she specialised in um, electric kiln glazes and invented a whole palette that was suitable Mm -hmm. for the electric kiln and she freely shared them even though it had taken her decades and decades to come up with all except for one because she said it had taken her too long to (laughs) to to create
0: listening to Out of the Kiln, from technique to concept. This talk was presented in partnership with Crafts, the Crafts Council Banyo magazine, and was edited by Shivani Darvi.